Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. One of science's most fundamental questions is how the universe came to be. What happened at the Big Bang? How has the universe evolved over time? Perhaps most importantly, why does anything exist? Harry Cliff is one of many particle physicists trying to answer some of these very key questions. This episode, I got to speak to Harry about the birth of the universe, how we can hope to better understand it, and how you go about making an apple pie from scratch. I'm Harry Cliff. I'm a particle physicist based at the University of Cambridge, and I work on an experiment called LHCB, which is one of these four big detectors at the Large Hadron Collider uh, in Switzerland. And I'm also the author of an upcoming book, How to Make an Apple Pie from Scratch. Amazing. Uh, yes, it's great to have you in the podcast, Harry. Thanks very much for speaking to me today. Um, it, it's, it's definitely worth, you know, I think starting the podcast with just an explanation. What, what is particle physics and, and what does a particle physicist actually do? Yeah, so particle physics, I guess, is where you get to if you keep asking why. So it's the sort <laughs> of the most fundamental science in terms of describing like how the universe works deep, deep down. So it's really a, a, the study of what is the world around us made from what are the basic ingredients, uh, and how do they behave, how do they interact with each other. And I guess the subject sort of started 100 or so years ago when people for the first time started to do experiments that broke bits of atoms off, and they realised that there was sort of substructure um, within what were originally thought of as the sort of most basic building blocks of matter. So you had this particle called the electron discovered, and then from there we've discovered, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of particles over the last century or so, and that journey continues at, at the LHC and elsewhere. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, through my sort of very, you know, um, scratching the surface reading of, of particle physics, one of the, the things that blew my mind was it was sort of that realization that there's no such thing as an empty space. Yeah, that's right. I mean, well, in terms of actually the, the way we think about what the world's made from has changed enormously. So it, it used to be the original atomic theory was quite usually cited. People are trying to sound clever in books, particularly. They like to refer to the ancient Greeks. So they quite often talk about Democritus, who was one of the first people to suggest the idea that the world was made of little discrete nuggets. And he, his view was there were basically two things in the universe, which was atoms, these indestructible building blocks, and the void, i.e. the vacuum. And so the whole world was just atoms moving around in empty space. But yeah, you're right that the current description of particle physics says actually that there is no such thing really as empty space. In fact, you could even say it says that weirdly that there's no such thing as particles either. Um, <laughs> so, so it's one of the really sort of strange counterintuitive things about the subject is actually we don't think of particles as being the fundamental building blocks of the universe anymore. What we actually think of as being the fundamental objects in nature are these things called quantum fields, which are sort of invisible fluid-like substances that are all around us. And we think of particles as little vibrations or ripples in those quantum fields. So it's almost like the universe is filled with these strange fluids and particles are kind of ripples sloshing about in them. And that means that even when there's no particles there, even when you've got sort of empty space, the quantum fields are still there. So the vacuum is seething with these things and they contain energy and sort of quantum fluctuations and all kinds of interesting things going on. So yeah, you're right. There's nothing... There's no such thing as empty space, but there's also no such thing as particles in, in some sense. <laughs> it's sort of like one of those, um, you know, um, the more you know, the more you know that you don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, do we understand how, how everything how everything came into being? Like why why anything exists at all? We we could tell a lot of the story, and, and that's the sort of story I really get into in the book that I I've, that's just come, about to come out. And um, 
the book sort of starts with this pretty simple-minded experiment, which is you sort of start, start off with an apple pie. Uh, maybe we'll get onto why, why it's an apple pie. You break it down to its chemical elements, and then you kind of trace their origins back through the history of the universe and how far can we go. So we, uh, we can fill in a lot of that story. Like we, we know where the chemical elements come from, for example. So, you know, the world around us, apple pies, everything contain, you know, hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, you know, a hundred or so chemical elements across the periodic table. And we have a pretty complete description now, thanks to a mixture of nuclear physics and astrophysics of where these things come from and, you know, forge either inside stars or during the, the sort of first few minutes of the Big Bang at very high temperatures. And then you can keep going back and you can say, okay, well, what happened even earlier well, if you go back far enough, those uh, the sort of protons and neutrons that made up those chemical elements were actually originally subatomic particles called quarks and gluons. And you can go even further back and back. And, and so we can actually tell this story um, going back to about a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. So we have a pretty good understanding of where matter came from uh, back as far as that. But when you go beyond a trillionth of a second, you want to go back into the first trillionth of a second after the Big Bang where those elementary particles came into existence, that bit of the story is much less clear. And that's where a lot of the kind of active research is at the moment. And, and there are some really big questions um, to do with, you know, one of the big problems that the experiment I work on particularly is interested in is why is there physical stuff in the universe at all? Because our current theory of particle physics tells us that in the very earliest moments of the Big Bang, you should have had huge quantities of matter created out of energy, so particles coming into existence. But for every particle, there should have also be antiparticles being created. They're sort of like mirror images of, of particles. So if you make an electron, you also make the anti-electron that comes along with it. Um, but if that were true, then as the universe cooled down, matter and antimatter should have met up and annihilated each other. So you would have this whitey reaction, everything get wiped out, and you're left with a universe with nothing in it apart from light, basically. So the f and we don't and we don't understand why that didn't happen. Our theory says that is all that sh is what should have happened, and it d obviously didn't because we're here. So that that yeah, that's just one. I mean, and I, I discuss these questions in the book, but there's a sev several big mysteries like this where basically we are trying to every experiment we do, and we're kind of pushing back and back and back in time and going closer and closer to the Big Bang. Um, but there are a lot of mysteries we still haven't answered. So it it, it sounds sort of like um, the the reason that there is matter in the universe is because the originally there was more matter than antimatter is that the sort of logic well it's it, yeah it's it's hard to say we don't we have some possible ideas so um one is that matter and antimatter get made in equal quantities in the very early universe but then in that first trillionth of a second at some point during that period some process took place which converted antimatter into matter for example so you got a little imbalance and and actually we can tell from astronomy basically by counting how much light there is left over from the Big Bang, we can work out how big the imbalance between matter and antimatter had to be. And it's only about one part in a billion. So that basically means if you have a billion particles of antimatter made, you need a billion and one particles of matter. The two billions <laughs> annihilate each other, you get one left over, and that one is enough to make everything in the universe. So it's <laughs> like a, that, that sort of says that, you know, everything we see, galaxies, stars, planets, is just a one billionth of what was created at the beginning. And the question is, how did that one billionth asymmetry come to be? And there are various ideas um, which are quite technical and, and, and kind of scary sounding. I don't know if we want to get into them, but some of them are to do with the Higgs boson, that maybe this particle that was discovered at CERN, that maybe the, the process that created that particle also somehow led to this asymmetry. There are other ideas that it happened way earlier. So when I say way earlier, 
we're talking about a trillionth of a second here, but you kind of, I'm talking about, then you're going back to like, you know, trillionths of a trillionth of a second kind of thing that something else <laughs> might have happened involving these other sorts of particles called neutrinos. The answer is we don't really know, but we, we well, we know something happened because we're here. And, and the question is that the job of people like me and other experiments and theorists is to try to figure out what was the process that, that led <laughs> to the universe existing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, so we can get really close back to the Big Bang, but presumably we can't get before before the Big Bang. Um, but does does the concept of before the Big Bang actually mean anything in science? Can, can you talk about before the Big Bang? I mean, a lot of people do, and, and theorists have great fun coming up with sort of speculative ideas about, you know, whether there was a universe before our universe, you know, is the universe cyclical, for example? Does it, like, expand and then collapse again and you get another universe born? <laughs> The, the problem with a lot, I mean, so, and some of these ideas, I think, do make predictions about things you might see if you look at the light from the Big Bang, something called the cosmic microwave background, that you might see certain patterns that could tell you about earlier universes, but no one's seen anything that, like that, really. Um, I think, I mean, there is a kind of good reason for thinking that we cannot actually know not just what happened before the Big Bang, but what happened at the Big Bang. And, and that's because of this process that uh, cosmologists believe took place in the first, I think, like 10 to the minus 36 the second after the Big Bang. There's this process called inflation, which is where the universe expanded in size by an enormous factor in a very short space of time. It basically expanded exponentially, so incredibly quickly. Um, and that inflation is needed to explain various weird features of the universe. The fact that basically, whatever direction you look in, the universe looks the same. And that doesn't really make sense because if you take two bits of sky on opposite sides of us, if you imagine, according to sort of the traditional Big Bang theory without inflation, those two bits of sky were never in contact. So they, they were never in contact long enough to kind of come into equilibrium. So the fact that they're the same, will have the same temperature, roughly the same density is really weird. So inflation explains this by basically saying everything used to be in the same place and it got blown up really quickly and so it spread across the whole sky. But the, this is a long-winded way of saying basically the problem with inflation is it basically, because space expanded so quickly... Any information from the Big Bang itself, i.e. Right, from time zero, can never reach us because it gets carried by the expansion of the universe way out of sight over the cosmic horizon. So it basically means that inflation sort of acts almost like a, a firewall and it says you cannot know what happened further back than about 10 to the minus 36 seconds after the Big Bang. You know, that's it. So maybe, I mean, and inflation is not confirmed. It's not fully, you know, it's, most people think it's probably right, but it's not fully confirmed part of the story. But if it is right, maybe we'll never know the answer to that question and that sort of sets the, the end of the story this is as far as we can go basically <laughs> which is a little bit frustrating <laughs> yeah frustrating but also mind-blowing that we've even you know got that far um let's come back to the uh, apple pie in your book because the the, mm. the the title how to make an apple pie from scratch that that was a carl sagan quote wasn't it um can you explain where where the quote came from and, and how it relates to 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 what you're talking about in the book yeah, so yeah, you're right. It comes from Carl Sagan. So it comes from a TV series called Cosmos, which came out in 1980 originally. They did a remake for Netflix, I think, a few years ago. But um, there's an episode called The Lives of the Stars. And it begins with this kind of like, I guess it's a bit of self-satire from Carl Sagan, where you there's a shot of space and what looks like a green planet floating in space. But as you zoom in, you realize it's an apple. And then it, the, <laughs> the sort of scene cuts, this slightly strange scene of an apple pie being made, but with like a kind of Blade Runner style soundtrack over the top of it um, so very sort of dramatic and portentous and then it cuts to Carl Sagan sitting in a, a Cambridge College dining hall actually the head of this big oak uh, table and the waiter brings out this apple pie to him and, and he looks at the camera and says 
if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. And sort of goes on <laughs> then to talk about, thank you, I'll, try, I'll be working on it. <laughs> um, he then goes on to say, okay, well, if I cut the apple pie in half, how long do I, do I get to an atom? And it's basically a way of saying that the ingredients of this simple object have a very long history that goes, in that particular episode, he's talking about the, the stars that, where, that make the chemical elements in the apple pie. Um, but he never really comes back to to kind of follow up on the idea. He just, it's just, just a throwaway line at the beginning and never, nothing is ever done with it. And I sort of thought, well, it'll be kind of fun to take this idea and see how far you can go if you, if you take his kind of logic, cut the apple pie up and up and up and up, how far back <laughs> in that story can we go? So the whole story of the book is basically you begin with an apple pie. And I literally did this. So I, I went down to my uh, dad's uh, house in South London because he used to, he, when he was a kid, was a very keen amateur chemist and in those days you could buy all kinds of scary chemicals from your local chemical supplier before they were regulated so he used to spend his happy sort of sunday afternoons making bombs basically in the back garden (laughs) kind of explosions and smells in the shed so he's still got quite a lot of old chemical equipment so i went down and borrowed his bunsen burner and a few other bits and pieces and we did this really stupid experiment where we essentially heated an apple pie to an extremely high temperature in a test tube until it thermally decomposed into uh, effectively carbon that gets left behind and then some liquids and gases that come off. And that's sort of the jumping off point for the telling the story. And, and the rest of the book is then tracing where does the carbon in the apple pie come from? Where does the oxygen come from? Where does the hydrogen come from? And back and back uh, as far as we can go. And then sort of discussing the mysteries that let, remain unsolved. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. (laughs) What are some of those those, those biggest mysteries that remain unsolved, do you think? I mean, I suppose things like dark matter and dark energy, you know, do, do you think we're actually sort of close to solving any of, the, any of those big mysteries? Yeah, I mean, dark matter, dark energy, definitely two of the big mysteries, but we're kind of sport for choice in terms of big mysteries in physics. And I, I do discuss those issues a bit in the book, but not in any great detail, because the book really focuses on where does ordinary matter come from? So where does the stuff in our apple pie and us and you know the stuff the world around us come from? And dark matter and dark energy, they are, they're made of something else, and we don't really know what they are. They're, they're just sort of two words to cover our ignorance. And you know, there, there is a good chance that we'll get some, some answers about you know, one of those two in the next few years. There's lots of interesting work being done. But in terms of the mysteries in in the book that, that I kind of discuss in detail, there's quite a few. Most of these really pertain to the question of why is there matter in the universe or why is matter in structured in such a way that you can have apple pies and human beings and all the rest of it. So like mm. one of these big problems, and, and it's sort of the problem that has like been puzzling particle physicists like me for a long time, is to do with the Higgs boson. Um, which is this particle famously discovered at CERN about uh, almost almost 10 years ago now, back in 2012. And so just, just to sort of give a very brief explanation, the reason the Higgs is important is that it, the discovery of this Higgs boson particle tells us that the universe is filled with something called the Higgs field. So this is the quantum field that's associated with the Higgs boson. And the Higgs boson, this particle, is a little ripple in the Higgs field. And the Higgs field plays a really crucial role in particle physics. It's the this field that gives mass to the basic ingredients of the universe. So the reason that electrons and quarks, the, thing, the particles that make up atoms, have mass is because of the, the Higgs field. 
Now, the, the thing that's really puzzling about this is that if you do sort of a naive calculation, theorists do this, um, and work out what the likely values of a Higgs field are, basically you find that, so that, that maybe to step back a second, the Higgs field's um, value determines how massive things are. So if you, if you imagine it's a bit like a, a dial, like a th temperature dial, if you turn it down, everything gets less massive. If you turn it up, everything gets more massive. And the dial in our universe is set at a very specific value of uh, 246 giga electron volts. It doesn't really matter what that means. It's just a number. But this number is kind of where it is in our universe. But when you do a calculation, you find really there are only two likely outcomes, which is that either the Higgs field is off at zero or it's got an enormous value, something called the Planck energy, which is you know trillions of times higher in energy than we can access currently in experiments. And if the universe was in either of those two states, either basically the Higgs field off or fully on, in the fully on case, every particle becomes so massive that everything would collapse into a black hole and we wouldn't have stuff in the universe. The universe would be full of black holes and, and nothing else. Or if it was off, then atoms couldn't form because particles would have no mass. They wouldn't bind to each other. So this weird value we have, 246, to get that, you have to fine-tune the laws of physics in this really sort of improbable way. So it looks almost like you know some, someone has like tinkered with the universe and set it up in just the right configuration to allow atoms to exist and therefore us to exist. And this is really sort of fishy and makes people quite sort of worried. So that there's, it's believed there must be something else beyond the Higgs boson, some other particles that can explain this peculiar value. And that was one of the big goals of the LHC where I work. We were sort of looking for particles that might explain this mystery, why the Higgs field has this very specific value. But so far, we've not found anything. Um, so this is one of the big questions in the book is, you know, because if you, if you can't explain this, then you can't explain why the universe has stuff in it. If, if the Higgs field had turned on in a different way in the early universe, then we wouldn't be here. So it's trying to understand, and this process where the Higgs field switched on, this happened about a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, which is about the energies that we can probe at the LHC and other experiments. So when, when we're doing it at the LHC, it's sometimes described as a Big Bang machine. We're literally studying the conditions that existed at that time to try to see what, what happened that allowed the Higgs fields to get this weird value. So that's one mystery. The antimatter one is another. Um, mm. and, and there are sort of, you know, you go back really, really far, you can say, well, okay, what happened at time zero? Like, how did the universe come into being? And that's a question that, you know, people have spent a very long time thinking about theoretically. Uh, but the problem there, of course, is it's, you, we don't yet have any way of accessing that point in time. We can only go back uh, to a certain distance currently with our experiments. So, yeah, there's a lot to still find out. So I suppose the spoiler <laughs> is that the recipe is not complete yet. We, we can go a long <laughs> way, but we can't quite get to the end. We can't quite get to the scratch just yet. Yeah, I mean... Um... That was one of the things I, I was hoping that you might be able to explain is is exactly what is what is happening at the uh, Large Hadron Collider and and CERN. You know, what are what are, what are the people working there and the machines actually actually doing? Well, it's a huge project. So there's actually a, a load of different questions that you can ask with the LHC. But actually, the machine, in, in some sense, it's a very complicated machine. But what it does is really simple and pretty brutal. It and it does it only does one thing, which is it accelerates particles to very, very, very high energies, the highest we've ever achieved in any experiment on Earth, and it smashes them into each other. And it does that 40 million times a second, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for about nine months of the year. And that's all it does, pretty much, well, with one little exception, which is sometimes instead of putting, usually what we collide are protons, which are the nucleus of hydrogen, so the simplest atomic nucleus. Uh, for about a month of the year, they also put lead ions um, 
the center of, the, of lead atoms in and collide them. But what I'm really, what most people work on at CERN is the proton, proton collisions. But the reason you can ask so many questions with this is when two protons collide, a huge number of different things can happen. You, when they collide, basically what's happening is that the reason you accelerate them is when they're going really, really fast, they have a lot of kinetic energy. And when they smash into each other, that kinetic energy is turned into new matter. So it's sort of through, through Einstein's famous equation, E equals MC squared, which says that energy and matter or mass are equivalent. If you put lots of energy into a collision, you can make new stuff. So you're literally making particles from energy. And there are, you know, uh, basically an infinite number of possible outcomes when you do this. And so you might make a Higgs boson, for example, and that was how the Higgs was discovered. You kind of have enough collisions where you make enough Higgs bosons that you can then say you've discovered the thing. Um, my experiment LHCB is mostly interested in particles called beauty quarks, which are an exotic type of fundamental particle whose properties are really interesting for various reasons. But by studying them, we can ask questions like, you know, are there new particles yet to discover? Because these beauty quarks can, the, the way they behave can be influenced by the existence of other heavier particles that we've not yet seen. So we wait, what we generally do is make very precise studies of these particles and see if we can catch them misbehaving effectively. Um, <laughs> and, there's a, and, there's a, and then there's people searching for dark matter, searching for supersymmetric particles, searching for all kinds of things, mini black holes. So that there's a huge range of different things you might see in these collisions. And the job of people like me is to scour through tens and tens of petabytes of data and try to find the things that you're interested in um, buried somewhere in this enormous data set. Yeah, do you sort of have um, artificial intelligence help helping you out, helping you helping you analyze the data? Does you know that can actually say, oh, you might want to take a look at this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that that's one of the real sort of like I, I guess hot topics at the moment, and it has been for quite a while. So you've got forty million of these collisions every second over the course of a year. That's a huge huge volume of data, far more than you could you know. So in the old days, the way particle physics was done is you'd have your collider experiment and you'd you'd have these um, basically photographs of the collisions that were done with these devices called bubble chambers. You might have seen these pictures. They're really beautiful, sort of these curving tracks moving through this, this liquid, usually a liquid gas of some kind. And people were employed, actually, usually um, women, this is put back, I guess, in the 60s and 70s, um, when sort of uh, roles weren't so equal in science, unfortunately. But they were, they were employed to scan these images and measure the tracks of the particles, measure their energies and mentor. So it was all done by hand. Nowadays, the, the data rate is so high, there's no way you could do it that way. So it's all computerized, obviously. But yeah, one of the big challenges is you've got this huge data set, but the signal, the thing you're interested in might be incredibly rare. It might only happen, you know, one in a billion collisions or, or less, for example. Um, so you, we use a lot of machine learning, so neural networks and various other things to sort of do pattern recognition. So you train these things to sort of, you give them some simulated data saying, this is what we're looking for. This is what it looks like. Um, and now go and find it. And then it will sort of filter the data for you and find, hopefully find the thing you're interested in. But um, to give you, I mean, just to give one a sense of the challenge, like with, with the Higgs boson discovery, there's a great statistic that I, I heard from one of the people, I think on, on the experiments that if you, if you filled an Olympic swimming pool with sand, the number of grains of sand is roughly equal to the number of collisions that have been produced by the LHC when it was when the Higgs was discovered in 2012. And the number of Higgs bosons that they saw was about enough to cover the tip of your finger. So in, in grains <laughs> of sand. So you're really talking about like, you know, tiny, tiny signals in huge data sets. Is there um te technology that you know you you wish existed that that would make the job easier is, is is there stuff on the horizon that's maybe like you know a hundred years away you think yeah we'll probably be able to do that and, and that will make everything 
everything so much easier? Yeah, I mean, well, one of the big problems we have at the moment is, well, the, 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 the computing challenges is one of the really big ones. Obviously, there's the infrastructure, there's building experiments and the, engineer, the engineering challenges, which are huge and in their own right. But in terms of like what's happening with the LHC now is we've had about 10 years of collisions. And as a result, we've kind of got, we've learned a lot. We've, we've searched for lots of things. We've made loads of measurements. But every year you take more data, that, uh, that sort of year's worth of data is a smaller and smaller fraction of what you've already got. So you don't mm. gain very much, basically, by keeping running. So the only way to get more information out is to boost the rate you collect data by an order of magnitude, say. So if you can then start recording data 10 times faster, then you can start to learn. You can look for rarer and rarer things. But this comes with a couple of problems. One is just that how to deal with the data, how the volumes that are produced. And you need enormous computing resources to do that. The other actually is we make a lot of use of simulations. So because the detectors are very complicated, if you want to make a measurement and you want to unfold all the biases and all the experimental effects, you need to have a really accurate simulation of the experiment so you know what things ought to look like if everything's working properly. And you use those. We use loads of simulation in, in all our measurements. And the problem is that now we need to create so many simulated collisions that it's basically too computer hungry and, and it, it requires so many processors and too much storage space. So, I mean, what we really need is a kind of way of, you know, cheaper, faster, uh, larger computers that can sort of pr both produce the simulation and store it. And that, I mean, I think there's various ideas about, there are lots of people working on this and how you might get around this problem in the future, but it is going to be one of the real bottlenecks, which maybe is surprising. You might think that like, the big collider and the detectors is the really hard bit, but this is looking increasingly like it's where the, the real problems are going to be in the next sort of decade as we take data at higher and higher rates. But in terms of like much longer term, I guess the thing we would really love to be able to do is collide at higher energy. Um, and so far, like you know, if you look at the history of particle physics, we started off, the first particle was discovered with a glass tube about 30 centimeters long. And century or so later, we've got a machine that's 27 kilometers long. And basically, there's this trade-off. You know, every time you want to go to higher energy, you need a bigger collider. And you get to the point eventually where it becomes impractical to build, you know. So the next machines that are being considered now are 100 kilometers in circumference, potentially. And we'll have to see whether they get funding or not, because they're going to be <laughs> very, very long-term expensive projects. So a way to accelerate particles over much shorter distances to high energies would be a real that would be an amazing breakthrough and that would really revolutionize, revolutionize the subject because then you could start to really go to you know really really high energies and, and the high every time you go to higher energy you've got a better chance of discovering something new um so so that would be the dream and, and there are various ideas about how to to do this with things called plasma wakefield accelerators and various other things but they're still in the sort of r d phase but and it's not clear how long it will be before they're you know usable but that that would be the real dream if you could accelerate if you could if you could get to the lhc energy on a tabletop that that would be you know for really being sci-fi that would be amazing yeah it, it, it's sort of really interesting um you know considering you know how much the technology uh, and and the knowledge and, and and the physics um has developed over the east say like the past hundred years um and then you sort of think about where it's ultimately going to like do you think um human beings will ever be able to get that that full picture of the universe you know what it is where it's been and where it's going and how it will end and just the, the entire story i guess that's the ultimate goal of physics i mean it, it it's it's a mugs game to say what we will and won't know yeah there, there are there are we can certainly tell a huge amount of the story we can already tell an amazing amount of the story one of the, the fact that we can we have a pretty good understanding of everything that happened in terms of physics at least from 
you know, a trillion for the second half of the Big Bang. And we have a reasonably good understanding or at least various ideas about how it might end, you know, in the very, very, very far distant future. And that's, that's an amazing achievement. Um, if you think about it, like, if you went back 100 years or just over 100 years, we didn't know anything about fundamental particles, more or less. Um, we didn't really know much about the universe. Like, we thought until the 20s that the Milky Way galaxy was the whole universe. That was this, you know, the big debate in the, in the 1920s between Hubble and others about, you know, were there galaxies beyond our own? And now, of course, we know that the Milky Way is one of just, you know, hundreds of billions of galaxies in the observable universe. So we, we've, is it, we know, we've discovered the universe had a beginning, which is kind of one of the most profound things you could ever find out. So we already know a hell of a lot. But I suppose the question is, are there limits to what we can know? And I think that there probably are. Uh, there's good reasons for thinking there are. And they're basically set by the fact that the speed of light is limited, which means that in the universe, you know, today, we can only see a certain distance. And that's because, because the universe is expanding, the further away an object is, the faster it's moving away from us. And it gets to, you get to a point where a star really, 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 really far away from the Earth is receding from us at the speed of light. And that means that a, particle, a photon leaving that star will never get to us. It will just sort of, it will be forever on our reach. That star is literally, we'll never see it. And, and that, that is just true. Mm. So there are, there are things we know that we cannot know, which are beyond the observable universe. And if you go back right to the very, very early universe, you know, sort of a fraction, a tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang, then there's also reasons for thinking because of this inflation process, this very rapid expansion of space that we believe took place, that also says there's a boundary beyond which we cannot see. So we may never know what happened at time zero, or if there was a time zero, you know, maybe... Maybe something happened before inflation, but if it did, we'll never see it because inflation carried it way beyond uh, what we can see. So yeah, there probably will we will probably eventually reach a point where sort of the laws of physics say that's your lot. Um, but you never know. I mean, you always the universe has an amazing capacity to surprise us, so you can never say never. Maybe, maybe there'll something we'll, we'll find something out that lets us go further than that. But we're still a long way from that point. We've still got a lot to find out before we get there. So there's plenty to keep us busy. <laughs> yeah, fantastic, yeah. fantastic. Um, well, yeah, uh, thanks, thanks very much for speaking to me today, Harry. It's been great, uh, absolutely mind blowing, hearing um, all about the universe and uh, uh, the secrets left to discover. And you know, uh, g- good luck with the book when it comes out, which I think is due out around about the time this, this podcast would be released. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, out, uh, out on August the fifth. That's right. Yeah, great. Yeah, good. <laughs> good. Uh, cool. Uh, well, yeah, thanks, thanks again for speaking to me. Oh, very nice talking to you, Ian. Nice to nice to meet you as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify.